Make Easier podcast by The Unmistakables. Welcome to the diversity conversation that everyone can learn from. Each fortnight, we interview guests from the world of business, culture and arts about the work they're doing to make the world a more inclusive place. I'm Asad. And I'm Ben. And in this week's Pride special, we're asking, what is a brand's place in protest? Asad, you're a former director of communications for Pride in London. Pride began its life as a protest in New York, right? What's the story and how did we get to where it is today? Well, it started with a shot glass or a brick. And reports say that after months of being hounded by the police, the LGBT community just had had enough of the constant oppression and took the chance to fight back. Marsha P. Johnson was named as the instigator, a queer black drag queen who threw this shot glass or a brick, we don't quite know, uh, at police. And that was believed to be the moment that Pride started 51 years ago. So we're going to hear more about Pride now, right? Well, it's my specialist subject for anyone who'd like to hear that I was the comms director. Uh, But yeah, that's right. On this episode of The Speakeasier, we're talking to Jan Gooding. Jan was formerly chair of Stonewall and held a position as the global inclusion director at Aviva for 10 years. She's now chair of Given, a brand purpose agency that helps brands grow by doing good. I'm super excited about this one. So shall we head straight in? Let's do it. Making diversity everyone's business. So welcome to the Speak Easier, Jan. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. It's just brilliant that the sun is shining. It does help. Yeah, really, really does. So we're going to kick off the episode, uh, which is a Pride special, with a little word association, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Um, The format is very simple. Ben and I are going to say a word, and you have to say the first word that comes into your mind. So I'll start with lockdown. Well, silence. (laughs) Clearly, fog. (laughs) Um, Boris. Yeah, not a good thing came to mind. I think he's a twat. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How about Stonewall? Pride. LGBT. Help. Pride. Rainbow. And finally, Black Lives. Matter. So... Jan, as we speak, it's the beginning of a Pride like no other. We're in lockdown, events around the world are being cancelled, and there's a whole new wave of protests over the killing of George Floyd in the US. We've seen brands putting out statements over the weekend, and we'd love to ask you about what you think a brand's place is in protest these days. I think uh, where I start is is behind the brand, the business. So, So for me... Brands are the manifestation or should be of the business that sits behind it and their intent and their plan to meet the needs of their customers and grow their business. And so the way I think about this is there is absolutely a place for business and commerce in relation to protest because businesses are employers and businesses have influence in this political sphere And businesses have customers who get affected by these issues. And clearly, businesses also want to do business. So when you see what's been going on over pretty much a week now, uh, obviously, there's a lot of destruction and and city centres, which are have become dangerous places. So if if you are a business, you know, for all I know, your your shops have been um, affected, maybe your workplaces have been affected. And your behavior as a business and therefore as a brand comes under scrutiny. 
And so I think silence is probably not an option, but you need to be careful and authentic about how you choose to say what kind of what 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 is your business and what gives you the right to comment. I imagine in in your time, Jan, you, you've been in an environment or in a business that feels like it has to respond or do something and it's that knee jerk versus the the balance of doing something right or doing something with care and with nuance. How have you navigated that before? One of the things that I've thought deeply about is is where the idea comes from. So when you're dealing with politics, is the idea coming from the professionals in your organisation, the public policy experts who kind of really know and understand that territory? Is the, is the initiative and the idea coming from your corporate comms people who for some reason think your brand or your company's reputation has an opportunity or is is running some kinds of risks or does it come from your from your marketing division as it were or your customer division where they're responding to the marketplace and the customer so one of the things i have found instructive over my career is that very good intentions to encourage a business to raise its game in the domain of politics can come from any of those parts of the business and I think it's the most important thing to understand that none of those functions should be trying to own this agenda. It's really a shared agenda from within the organisation about who the organisation is, what its purpose is, and how it's trying to influence its own thinking and then its behaviour in, in the world. I think when it goes wrong, and it unravels very quickly, is, is when it's a tactical, superficial sort of opportunistic response to what you see your competitors doing. So you think you ought to do something similar. I think these things are deep and, you know, business can be a bit allergic to politics, certainly protests, certainly demonstrations, certainly anything around changing the law. You, you, You could suppose that many businesses would be forgiven for thinking, I'm simply here to, to make shoes or run a pizza parlor and as long as I do that within the law it's not my business you know to try and change the law I just I just do my business and so I think businesses themselves go on a journey of what would what would make it appropriate for them to intervene in some way and I think it's been really interesting any of these big movements whether it's been civil rights which we are more aware of in the states but there's versions of it uh, all around the world. So civil rights movements, women's liberation, gay rights, there are these various movements that go on and businesses more or less play a part in them. So with with that, we'll, we'll come on to Pride in a second. Um, but you, you talked about diversity almost being everyone's job, right? The response could come from anywhere. But over the last, let's say, five years, we've seen the marked increase of a head of diversity, head of inclusion role. And I, I think you've you've had one of those. And so how how does that work within an organization? Does it often feel like it's all on that person to come up with something? Is that the most impactful way to drive the change in the org? Well, I, yes, you're, you're quite right. I was the global inclusion director and I was the, at Aviva, which is a, an insurance firm. And I was the first person to hold such a post. And I thought very carefully about 
where my role was located because there had been a head of diversity and inclusion for the previous 15 years sitting in HR uh, in, in kind of middle management. So when I took on the role, it was because sufficient change was not happening. And when I reflected on who should I report into, how should my work be funded, how was I going to create the case for change, I felt very strongly that it should not sit within HR, that it was very important for Aviva anyway, to think about diversity and inclusion as a commercial imperative. And the way to do that was, A, I was my background was marketing. So that in itself spoke a little bit because I was able to speak the language of commerce, but also that I reported into a board member. And it was a board member who was the chief executive of our UK business, which was the biggest part of the group. And so literally by design, I made sure that I had the authority, influence and positioning in my role in the organisation. And, and I think it's very telling where diversity and inclusion sits from my point of view. If it's in the middle somewhere of the HR department, it's not being seen as a meaningful uh, driver of commercial advantage. Uh, and Aviva took the view because they, they'd uh, seen a, an enormous study about companies who want to grow, what are the drivers of growth for those who grow most quickly, organically? And one of the key drivers was diversity and inclusion. So an enormous study had been done by the business school in Oxford University. And when they did an analysis, looking back over, I think it was a period of 10 years, who were the companies who had had the most consistent accelerated growth over time, organically? What they found was they had a very diverse workforce and relatively more inclusive cultures to other companies. And so in a way, my role was created out of the conviction of the CEO, who was pretty enlightened on this, a kind of activist CEO, if you like, who really bore into the evidence that has been generated year after year about competitive advantage and therefore my role was a very strong signal to the organization that diversity and inclusion is not just being about being nicer to one another. It's actually about the quest for divergent thinking uh, and more interesting, innovative solutions and being closer to your customer. That's why we're doing it, not just to be nicer to one another. So, Jan, if, if I could, what, what was it that made you take that role? Because as a marketer, to go from having marketing or brand or whatever in your job title to being a lead on diversity inclusion is is quite a leap. And at the time, did your peers see that as a different move? Was there a lot of assumptions that you might be in HR? Because I would say from the outside, at least, you were one of the pioneers in talking about diversity from a commercial angle. And I'm just interested to kind of cast your mind back of how that was at the time and uh, and how you've seen things evolve since then. I think the honest truth was that I was looking for a change. And when I got the phone call from uh, my boss, who was the chair of our Asian business, it, it came out of a crisis. So to be completely honest with you, there was a board meeting where they were reviewing the progress of women. It's actually Aviva didn't have a lot of data about anything, but they did have a lot on gender. And, and there was a board meeting. And in fact, the board was over, you know, 
30% women, which I think also helps. And the data was all going the wrong way. And one of the men made the unfortunate quip, we're no, we're no worse than anybody else. And a number of board directors, I'm, I'm told, obviously, I wasn't in the room, very much the women, but also some of the men, some of the men who came from other boards where they were more enlightened, really reacted strongly to that idea of, you know, we're no worse. It's like the insurance sector's terrible at this, aren't they? Um, we're no worse than anyone else. The complacency caused some real anger. Um, and so, wow, we really need somebody now, combined with this idea that there'd been this analysis, the Oxford study that I told you about, saying, look, this is a really key component of success in the future, diversity and inclusion. And look where we are, we're going backwards. And there was a tremendous feeling of we need somebody right now who can get onto this. And I think they thought of me because I was the chair of Stonewall. And so I think in that simplistic way, people go, diversity, that's gay people, black people, <laughs> disabled people. Um, I think in all honesty, I, I, was, I was not only one of the few senior women in the organization, but I was also one of the senior lesbians, and I was, and I was outspoken and I was known. And I was also the most senior marketing person in the organization. And I think they realized in a in a moment that it, in a way I uniquely uniquely had the attributes they were looking for. My own reaction was to say, what on earth makes you think I could do that? And I think that came from that hesitation was that my experience up till now had been this was someone who sat in HR. And that absolutely wasn't my my background. And I'm very respectful of the huge volume of academic study and deep knowledge that there is, which I'm still learning. I, do, I don't think you can ever, you can ever know, ever arrive on this subject. It's it's what makes it so fascinating. So because I'm interested in what people tick anyway, and I thought this would be really interesting if I can get right that I wanted to be called inclusion director, not diversity director, because diversity just makes people go into those little boxes I was talking about. I thought if I talk about being inclusion director, that sounds interesting to everyone especially the men, um, and predominantly white British men. And if I could report into a board member, uh, and if I could sit on what I wanted to do is sit on the senior leadership team of the HR function, because I knew they weren't going to give me a big budget. I knew this was going to be about the power of argument, the power of policy ideas, the power of persuasion, and I thought if I can sit on the top team, the leadership team of the HR director, I will be influencing right at the top the HR directors of Europe, of North America, of the UK, of Asia, so I can feed into their plans in a way that will feel quite efficient. So I thought that would speed things up if I could be at the top table. And interestingly, that was perhaps the most controversial part of my ask, which is which is funny, isn't it? You'd have thought that would have been the easy bit, sit at the top table of HR, but it wasn't. I think they were a bit uncertain about who is this marketing person arriving into our team. Um, but they were incredibly helpful to me. I mean, it worked just as I hoped it would. We did, we did do something very bold, equal parental leave, 
I mean, we did some. We did something really expensive. I.e., it costs a lot of money because if you think about the average pay of men being so much higher than women, and then you say we're going to give you the same parental leave that that mothers get, i.e., potentially, you know, six months off on full pay. That was a really big statement moment, and I would never, ever have got something like that, even beyond I've had this crazy idea. It would have been dead in a week if I hadn't had my marketing experience, if I hadn't had my commercial argument, if I hadn't been on the top team, if I hadn't been reporting into a board director with a CEO who really wanted to show the organisation that he took this seriously. Jan, we uh, we could talk all day about this. I mean, I could, as a parent, certainly talk all day about this, but um, we wanted to talk about pride as well. So as diversity consultants, uh, we see that many brands over the years have got involved in pride. And a recent study just showed that consumers um, who have been more exposed to LGBT plus people through the media are more likely to accept them. What are the lessons do you think that brands can learn from the success you've seen in this space? Well, the first thing I would want to say is that, that in my view, brands and commerce are extremely not only welcome, but an important part of pride. And the reason I want to say that is because I know that in itself can seem to be a controversial statement. And the reason that I think it's really important, and I think brands and companies have, have found their confidence uh, over the years on this, is goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. They are employers and they have customers and they have influence in the world. So I think, I think it's important that brands take part. I think success comes from those brands where it is a meaningful expression of what they're doing within their business. So, so actually, what, what's happening around your own uh, LGBTQ employee base, what your policies are, and what the experience of, of your own staff is, is going to be really fundamental. And I think it's difficult to be sure-footed in the domain of pride as a business if an investigative journalist were to arrive and the first thing they discover is everyone's having a horrid time. And that's quite complicated because you get into supply chain and all sorts of things. But I think getting your own house in order is important first. And then I think the way in which you materialize in, in pride is also important. I, I observe that it's become like a retailing couple of months in the calendar, which I have mixed feelings about to the extent that that's great if people feel it's this time of year, what are we doing? And they're prepared to invest and they're prepared to be visible because actually visibility matters. That's what pride's about. It's about us taking to the streets and being visible. And who's prepared to be visible with us is really, really important. So shops dressing their windows and, and all of that, I think, is very welcome because that's about that's the side which is the celebration of who we are. But, but it does come with the politics of what is the purpose of pride. And the purpose of pride is still essential because so much has yet to be done. You know, the very first pride I marched on in London, just ahead of me were a group who had a few, you know, uh, card, bits of cardboard on sticks. There were a group of five people maybe. And the sign said, we're marching here because we're not able to in Istanbul. 
in our home. And, and when you see that, you're struck by how important pride is because of all the countries, all the places where LGBTQ people are still suffering so much. So I think as a brand, you need to be a bit more thoughtful than, I know it's become infamous now, but the Marks and Spencer's, whatever it was, sandwich with bacon, lettuce, guacamole and tomato, whatever it was, you know, that, that's just superficial and insulting. And, and that's going to, that you know, that's not welcome. I mean, Marks and Spencer, that's welcome. Them trying to do something, that's great. But what that says to me is they didn't talk to anyone in their organisation who identified as LGBTQ or they, or they wouldn't have produced something so crass, really. Jam, I mean, I could talk about this for hours, having been on the other end of media coming at me last year when I was the director of Comms for Pride saying, well... It's pinkwashing, and every year the narrative comes back round about the corporate involvement. But what I'm more interested about specifically this year is about the roots of Pride, the protests and the protests that we're seeing around the world. And just this morning I was asked to comment on how brands have commented, like Netflix, and I've just seen something about L'Oreal blowing up. And how how do you see that? How has this movement of pride that's gone from a protest to more of a celebration and party? Like, is it that brands only get involved at the point where it can be a celebration and party and, and brands just don't want to be involved in protests? No, I think I think if you if you turn up, you're turning up to the protest. You're not turning right. up to a party. I mean the 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 in the first Pride I went to, Sarian McKellen came to speak to these young people. Stonewall took every year 200 teenagers to their very first ever Pride from all over the country. And wasn't I lucky to, to go to that and, and hear Sarian talking about the first Prides he marched in, which must have been 30 years ago, uh, probably more than that, where you were spat at and you had missiles thrown at you and you had insults. And and he said to us, as you walk round, enjoy the celebration because of the because of the journey that that we've been on. But but don't forget, I mean, that year that, that we were marching, gay people were being rounded up in Russia. And I remember he went on the main stage and Stonewall had a t-shirt in Russian that translated mean meant some people are gay, get over it. And that and that was very, very deliberate. And so I think if you are a business, if you are a brand, you this is not a retailing occasion. This is a protest. And we don't mind you getting out the rainbow if that's your way of showing we're part of this protest too. But but don't be stupid. It, it's a protest. And, it, and it's manifesting itself as a party because being visible and proud of who we are is part of the protest. That's the point. Um, so it's protest first party afterwards i've been thinking about that a lot this year given pride won't be happening and people are turning to virtual prides and we started the conversation talking about the limits of lockdown and i know that's something that you've written about do you think there's any place for these virtual prides that we're seeing right now do, do you really think it it can ever do the job of, of bringing people together or I, and I'll be really honest, I think I've got quite a cynical view on it where I think people, are, they want to come off their screens now because it's too much, but you'll never get that same feeling of being together. And I think that's in part why a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests have, have come up so quickly because people do want to be together and that's the only real way to 
drive change. So I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on Pride in this extraordinary year. Yes, I think I think that you make a fascinating point because it was very striking people yesterday in London marching. I mean, you know, it, it was as if lockdown hadn't happened and no one wants to hear about you're going to have caused the next spike in the in COVID. Pa- passions were so high and this seemed so enormous that it completely outweighed the risks and the dangers. And to me, it was very it was very profound and very moving because I think it's the closest we get to what the LGBTQ community felt like when they were marching 30 to 50 years ago. It was like the people marching yesterday. It was at risk. There was danger to your life. And I think it was very potent to me to see the Black Lives Matter protests going on yesterday, deeply moving. And I think there is a parallel to be drawn. I think there is no substitute for it, Asad. I, I, I would agree. I would agree with you because, because that kind of visibility is that many people taking the trouble to stop what they do, to, to take to the streets, to show in numbers how much they mind about something, how angry they are about something, how much they want change. And then to listen to the speeches and to feel I am part of something bigger than me. You only get that by going to a, a gathering. And, and certainly the first time I went to UK Black Pride, which must be six years ago now, it was a lot smaller then compared to last year. Going to last year it was astonishing. I think there were over 10,000 people. And it's visceral to be, as, as, a, as a white woman, to be the minority like that was so wonderful and so important and how else am I going to get that feeling unless I go and be amongst um, such a huge crowd so it's no substitute and I I hope nothing happens that makes the, the the LGBTQ community as angrily go out apart from in support of Black Lives Matter because that's our fight too so so for me you know, if I wasn't in the personal circumstances, I would have gone yesterday. If I felt I could have taken the risk, I wouldn't, because it's all of our fight. It's that you know, if this, maybe it's a way of thinking about that. That's this year's pride fight. Is the black pride? Is Black Lives Matter fight? It's all of our fight. So, in terms of taking to the street, that's the big. That's the big fight, and it's really important. And the foundations of Stonewall come from people of color in New York, as we all know has been the stories have been told so many times it doesn't matter who threw the first brick exactly no one ever knows but we know who was there and and we know who our heroes and heroines are but i do think virtual prides have a place because we still need to hear from each other you know it may not be so public but i think they can be well done and they honour the oppression people feel behind their closed doors at the moment. And so it may be, for all I know, that people are able to attend virtual Pride events who still, for whatever reason, couldn't or wouldn't go to a to one in their in their town or in or in their city. You know, there's a there's a potential anonymity to attending a virtual conversation. So for all I know, and I'm asserting this asset they may get a different kind of audience where it's less about the screen, but more about the relevance of the conversation. And I think if we have people like yourself, you know, people want to hear what you think. 
And I think that could be very helpful. It's better than a vacuum. I mean, we'd, we'd rather meet with you. We'd rather hear you on a stage. But but to give a different platform, I think, um, is still valid. Thank you. Well, I, I, one of the things that I, I get obsessed about is the minority and the mainstream working together. And Ben and I talk about the mainstream and the mainstream. And <laughs> That's very good. You, you said something that um, really made me think which was about being a minority within UK Black Pride. And I think there's been lots of controversy over the years about the mainstreamification, if that's a word, about Pride, how Pride might only be for certain demographics. And I I did a lot of work as a volunteer to try and counter that narrative, not just because it was a narrative, because I also genuinely didn't believe it. I think there was so much good work happening to make Pride more inclusive. Um, But I want to talk to you about your experience within UK Black Pride, because I think it is, even as a brown person, I can I can, and I have felt like a minority in both prides, um, but possibly more at home in inverted commas at Black Pride because it was under this context of BAME and people of colour. I guess for you, how, how do you explain um, that feeling of being at UK Black Pride to other people? How do you talk to other white people about it? Because I think that's where this white fragility can get overcome. It's the same debate with men about men talking to other men about gender issues. How do white people talk to other white people about black issues? Well, I suppose what I I, I have, I have talked about it and I have encouraged people to come from my own family, from colleagues at Aviva, because Aviva tended to go to the, the Saturday mainstream, you know, big floats one. Uh, and they thought, Black Pride the next day was for the black employees at Aviva, which of course was ludicrous. So I found myself with different audiences. You've got different things to overcome. And what I say is, it's it, they're both important. It's not a it's not a which one's best. Or I go to both. You should go to both. I recommend you go to both. And by the way, I recommend you go to something outside of London as well. You know where, wherever you live see one of the smaller support one of the smaller prides because 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 all of them are different experiences um and what i say is first of all it's incredibly welcoming of everybody it's the most inclusive event that i've been to in the sense that i felt no discomfort i of course i had the advantage of lady phil inviting me so i heard from her you are very welcome please come as my guest so that was quite a privileged invitation, which I, I understand that I had. But what I say is there's wonderful music, there's wonderful food. It's a really joyous, very relaxed, almost recovery day from the day before. But what I really like about it is if you want to learn, there are tense and fringe conversations going on where there's some really hard-hitting panels and debates and discussions where if you come in the spirit of wanting to learn and understand, you will, and you, you may well feel uncomfortable, as I, as I have felt, hearing some of the things that were said, but you will you will be safe. You know, there, there could be no better place to go to learn and to have fun and to feel safe, which is, which is what I did. I felt safe in that, in that huge crowd, as I felt safe on the Saturday as well. Well, p- part, part of me, Jan, thinks about, um, generational shifts and I on Saturday was passing through Peckham and there was a rally uh, for Black Lives Matter happening and it ended in uh, near Peckham Library and I was just watching and what was so striking for me was the number of people on screens and on phones and actually how younger people are interacting with 
um, activism today is so much in marketing terms more multi-channel yeah. it's less about turning up it's more about turning up and streaming and showing to the point where I, I put a, a tweet up that ended up getting thousands of um, likes because you, you, the ability to amplify is great but people might not necessarily then feel the need to get up and go themselves because they're sat back observing it on a screen um, and and I guess I, I'm just curious because you were there and last year when we did the Pride Jubilee, we talked about the history of Pride and you were there at a time when Pride was more politicised, was more of a protest and probably had fewer brands involved. How much do you think brands are, are watering these things down and, and they're driving a more sanitised version of things? And that's why brands are really struggling today with the real rawness and riotous, riot, riot nature of Black Lives Matter and where the movement is at now. Brands are invited guests. It's not their event, Prides. So when you say watering down, I, I don't know if and how they're doing that. I'm not sure I understand that, unless you say there's a volume of sort of drapery and rainbowness that's not meaningful is, is watering it down. I think what will be really interesting is how brands behave this year and next year. So this year, do brands do enough? Are, are they still here with us in lockdown? Are brands still funding the charities and supporting the events and activities that we can do? Or do they disappear because they can? Because actually it was only about the window dressing and unless, you know, millions of people are going to see them, they're not going to turn up. So I think there will be a really interesting post-mortem <laughs> to be done about the behaviour of brands this year. Did they stick with us? Because that will show they meant it. And then next year, if brands withdraw because it got a bit hot in the kitchen, well, again, that will be another audit to be done. And I doubt that brands will. I, 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 and, and if there are brands who do, fine, because the priority is the protest. And if brands can't hack it because it's difficult, I find it difficult. It's, it's very easy to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, these are big, enormous questions being asked about ourselves and how we think and our biases that are, that are painful and difficult to confront. And any brand worth its salt would want to be part of that because it's about humanity. And your customer base of any kind of scale has all of humanity in it. And so for me, it would be, if I was in, I'm not in a big, company anymore because I've put aside my executive career my advice would be really stick with it this year and learn what you can learn in these strange circumstances and that will hold you in good stead next year when we can I, I hope and for all I know we might not be able to run them again next year but I, I hope we'll be able to do a lot more than than now when we're not in the startled eye of the eye of the storm it will be very telling won't it to see whether brands disappear because the protest is the core of it so that it can't be watered down the draping can appear or disappear the brands can disappear but the, but the core of the protest it's too profound lives are at stake and i think what we've seen with me too and now with black lives matter we link arms with one another we we are the same protest i know we have the different specifics around each of these different dimensions but it is about the law the treatment of authority you know authority respect you know that we we, we are bound together the, the persecution the bullying the lack of opportunity 
we're all bound together by the same set of barriers. So we so we link arms. Jan, um, talking about being um, bound by these things, that I think at the start of um, the lockdown, there was a lot of talk. You know, some, you know, some might call it uh, cliche, really, about us all being in this together. I think um, over time. We've seen a lot of inequality. We've seen that it's worked for some people and it hasn't worked for others at all. I, I for one, can say that in some ways life's got a lot easier for me. I don't have any childcare issues anymore. I don't even have to drop my son off at school. I haven't taken him to school for eight or nine weeks. And I've written a piece actually recently about how uh, parents um, might reap the benefits from uh, from what they've learned during lockdown. But equally, we saw that you'd written an opinion piece about the negative impacts of working from home on creativity and, and mental health. Do you think businesses' decisions to work from home for the long term is going to impact diversity as well? Yes, I, wor- I worry about that because I don't think, certainly when I was in my last job, I didn't think what, what's an inclusive culture if everyone's working from home? I mean, I thought, that was, I thought there was a direction of travel over the next decade that the balance would shift to more flexible working, let's put it, Put it that way: people working wherever it was appropriate to work, rather than having to go to a, go to a place. I really do worry about it. I do. I do worry about it because I think whoever is vulnerable feels even more vulnerable now. So all the issues around fitting in, confidence, being assertive—you know—the more you narrow the way in which we interact to each other, the more it's playing to the strengths of a few. So if to be an inclusive leader, it was to be to be good at listening and to show humility and evoke from your team their thoughts to, to build a greater whole, that's an awful lot harder on Zoom. And it's even harder when, unbeknownst to you, somebody is struggling because their home circumstances are, are not positive for whatever reason i found personally that there was a couple of weeks where i found i felt so almost safe in my own home uh, but also very disconnected like when i was learning reading more about uh, the disproportionate impact on vain people of covid19 and how they were more likely to die from it i felt like i hadn't seen the people at hospital i felt like i'd not seen anyone outside of my own four walls and i think that i wonder if if that's the threat that we all become more comfortable in our own spaces and we don't see the impact on the wider world because we're just not even outside you know and at best if we are we might be at the fairly middle class park at the end of the road depending on where we live yes i i think i think we are in peculiar bubbles but but actually if you make the effort you can find out can't you we're we're given we're given enough clues to then pursue them I think the challenge Ben is is the energy it takes it's not you know it's not so easy you've got to be energetic about who's having a different experience for me than me and what should I be doing about it because it's not enough talking about it and thinking about it We've all got to do something. Mm-hmm. Have you got any tips on that, just to close? Because one thing that I've been very conscious of, my um, my little boy's mixed race, his grandparents are Jamaican, and I felt a real responsibility to tell him about what was going on in the States and to tell him quite straight. Also, I'm just thinking about any tips to help people diversify more. How can people become more aware of other people's lives and actually become more diverse themselves? 
Well, I, I, it's very hard, isn't it, to give tips for other people. I, I can tell you what I try and do, which is I, I curate my social media. I follow people that I couldn't disagree with more. And sometimes it's really painful because it comes in my Twitter feed, some ghastly thing they've said. And I also read. So I ask people if, if someone has read something interesting. I mean, one of the trustees of Stonewall has just written a book, A Dutiful Boy, which I, which I read. Absolutely astonishing, simply astonishing, a whole life and a world that I knew nothing about. So it's about making the effort with the articles you read, the newspapers you read, who you follow, putting yourself in uncomfortable places. I think the most uncomfortable thing I did, which I discovered, I think it was one of the one of the newspapers ran a thing, send us the last, it wasn't the BBC even, send us the last picture you took before lockdown. So out of interest, I went and looked at my photos and I discovered the last picture genuinely before lockdown. It sounds like I'm you know, as the chair of Stonewall at the time, that I'm, I'm, this is a setup, but it was genuinely, I took a picture where I went to the, the employee network groups at Stonewall, the BAME and the trans had organized a fringe meeting in Hackney in an arts facility. And it was the most uncomfortable evening I'd had for a long time. I was, I was generationally out of my depth, background, experience, everything. And I, and I went to this event to learn and it's really uncomfortable when every person speaking is revealing a world to you that you know nothing about. So I think all of it, it's incumbent on all of us to put yourself in difficult situations. If you, if you don't want to go to events and debates, then do it through your reading and make sure that you don't allow yourself to slip into a, into a bubble. I couldn't agree more with you, Jan, and I hope that this episode has been both comfortable and uncomfortable listening for people, because uh, I think we've touched on quite a lot from your experience at Aviva through to views on corporates in Pride and and then now where we're at in lockdown. So all that it leads me to say is a massive thank you for taking the time. I know I've really taken a lot from this and I'm going to go diversify my uh, social media and probably unfollow a few people Sorry, ben. <laughs> thank you it's been lovely it's felt like a lovely conversation thank you very much thank for you, having Jan. me thanks thanks so much Jan. bye making diversity everyone's business i really enjoyed that conversation with jan um asad you were formerly the director of communications for pride in london so i know that you know a lot about pride already but what else did you learn today well obviously i don't like to talk about it but i'll mention it to anyone who will listen um yeah i, I was and i i think what what really struck me about the way that jan talks about it was a the level of consideration that she puts into it coming at it from creating a new role in inclusion within a large corporate company in a sector that is slow to change slow to innovate is not easy and i have full respect for her to have done that the other thing that really struck me was how open and proactively jan puts herself in difficult and uncomfortable spaces whether it was uk black pride or the meeting um in hackney that she mentioned through stonewall I think that's just amazing and that's something that everyone should take from this, myself included. I, I questioned how often I do that and possibly how much time I'm spending on a screen that is only affirming my own biases rather than really challenging um, what I think uh, and what I feel. 
So yeah, how, how about you, Ben? What did you take from it as someone maybe a bit further away from Pride? Well, do you know, the, the, the thing that really struck me more than anything was, uh, you know, like you said about Jan, talking about stepping outside your comfort zone and actually getting involved with people from, with, you know, different beliefs, different backgrounds. And, and, and I pictured myself at an event at Lord's uh, last year where I went to help out on a day that was... Um, it was a, a thank you to the volunteers that had worked on the South Asian action plan cricket activity, but everyone there was South Asian and female. So I wasn't just the only white person in the room, I was the only man in the room. I mean, it was my intersectional day of difference. <laughs> and and I remember being struck by how powerful that was and, you know, how like, you know, I didn't feel in any way threatened. I felt kind of humbled and really, um, really, glad to have even just an hour of a sense of what it's like to be different in a room you know and obviously I, I, I'm coming from a, a privileged point of view I've had no kind of insight as to what it's like to, you know to be in a difficult situation it was amazing to have an opportunity to just be different and to you know not be the majority I think that's the thing that really struck out for me and I've been acutely aware of being the minority for most of my life and definitely throughout my career and actually, as I've gotten older, I've definitely become more middle class in my beliefs, in the people that I'm around, in the decisions that I make. And it's just taking that time to stop and think, that's no bad thing. There shouldn't be a judgment on that. But what there should be a judgment on is if you don't have the ability to stop and say, what am I not hearing? What am I not seeing? Um, and I think business leaders today either have to take that time or find people or consultancies to help them navigate that difference. Uh, and it makes me it makes me really excited to do the work that we do because I feel like we're always learning something new and then we're working hard to think about how we bring that to other people, whether that's through our A to Zs on our blog or whether it's to the work that our clients pay us to help them with. So yeah, I, I'm, I think it's a... I'm just going to stop talking there. I really like um, creating those opportunities for clients where they've not, you know, they've missed a market, they've missed a space, they've missed a demographic. You know, you've heard me say this a thousand times, but the amount of brainstorms I've been in where we're told we're targeting mum, not mums, not mm. women, just mum with a capital M. <laughs> and I'm sat there as a single dad thinking, well, I've got money to spend as well. Why aren't you targeting me? But there's still a lot of, you know, very, very traditional thinking. And I think the more that we engage and work with people of different backgrounds, with different lived experiences, the more opportunities we're going to find. It's like Jan was saying a moment ago about, you know, you need diversity of thought. You need different people in there to look at those opportunities, you know, because if you've got someone that's never been exposed to Ramadan or never been exposed to Christmas in the traditional sense, then it's the same thing. You're just missing out on massive opportunities. Absolutely that. So there we are, Ben, another episode of the Speak Easier. And so for anyone who's made it to this endpoint, thank you for listening. And if you want already, give us a follow on at underscore unmistakables on Twitter and Instagram. Speak Easier podcast by The Unmistakables.